those dialogues turned into therapy sessions because people were recounting their experiences with each other. African-Americans experienced feeling rejected by African immigrants, for example, or African immigrants feeling rejected by African Americans. But also what came out was, was some of the positive experiences. And so uh, what we saw was some healing going on. Welcome to today's episode of a news hub series of the podcast, Who Belongs? The Othering and Belonging Institute, with financial support from the NEKC Foundation, is developing a series of podcasts to capture examples of bridging to belonging. We want a world where everyone belongs. So how do we get there? The answer, bridging. Throughout the series, we will talk to leaders implementing bridging work and individuals who have experienced the bridging transformation. My name is Miriam Magaña Lopez, and I will be hosting today's episode. Today, we will be speaking with Gerald Lenoir, formerly the founding executive director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, also known as BAJI, and currently a strategy analyst at the Othering and Belonging Institute. Our second guest is Nunu Kadane, formerly one of the founding board members of BAJI and currently the director of Priority Africa Network. Our guest today will be talking about their work focused on bridging African-American and immigrant communities through intentional dialogues. Here's our conversation. Gerald and Nunu, thank you so much for joining us today. To start the conversation, what does bridging mean to you and what led you to pursue bridging work? I think Nunu and I are kind of the epitome of bridging. I, I'm uh, of African-American descent, uh, parents coming from Louisiana and Mississippi. Uh, Nunu is from uh, is of Eritrean descent from Ethiopia. and so. We came together around uh, African solidarity and then uh, bridging towards uh, bringing African-Americans and black immigrants and other immigrants into a into social movement for racial justice and immigrant rights and economic justice. And so a lot of our work over the last, uh, oh, since 2005 at least, has been bridging across different racial and immigrant and ethnic communities. Yeah, similar to what Gerald said, uh, bridging is, um, it's a form of connecting, it's it's building connections where either none exist or connections that have been severed. Um, in our case, we were looking more uh, with um, making the connections inter-ethnic. So um, while in the mainstream, bridging or racial dialogue is very much in the black-white binary. We were looking actually internally within the subset of, you know, the diverse um, black community, some of whom are um, black immigrants um, and others are African-Americans. And is there an, was there an instance where you figured that this is something that you needed to do? Like, why did you want to pursue bridging? Well, I can just tell you the origin story of, of Baji. Uh, if thinking back to 2006, there were these huge demonstrations for immigrant rights, uh, and in fact, at that time, they were the largest demonstrations in the history of the country. And one of our uh, co-conspirators, Reverend Kelvin Souls, 
wrote an email to several of us who he had been working with to say, I'm looking out over these crowds across the country and I don't see any black folks. Where are the black immigrants? Where are the African-Americans? Another pastor, Reverend Phil Lawson, responded to say, we need to come together in a meeting to discuss what we're going to do about this. So that was the impetus for a group of us, both African-Americans and black immigrants, particularly African immigrants, to come together to discuss uh, how are we going to bridge uh, African-Americans with these immigrant communities and, and also bring black immigrants into dialogue and into, into the social movement for immigrant rights and racial justice. Uh, there are two ways where blacks were mentioned in relation to immigration. One was, you know, black people saying they're taking our jobs, immigrants are taking our jobs. And then the second was that there was sort of a singular lens through which the term immigrant was being seen, which was largely Latinx or Asian and almost entirely missing out the presence of black migrants within that mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about bridging, we saw, uh, not saw, but we, we realized in, in the early years that black immigrants are the critical bridge to make these connections. It, it cannot be in a simple narrative of uh, taking jobs. And, and we started having um, group discussions from uh, churches to community centers to talk about what, um, you know, how immigration uh, policy is impacting immigrant communities and, and who are the black, the, the immigrants in, in general, and then bringing in the lens of black migrants within this mix with largely African-American communities, but also mixed with um, African and other black migrants. Thank you so much for that. I, I want to follow up because we've been talking about bridging and why bridging is important and, and how it got started. But can you talk to us about when you say you're bridging, what exactly are you doing? What approaches are you taking? So I'm going to let Nunu talk about the African diaspora dialogues, uh, which is one of the key ways that we uh, were doing our bridging work. The African Diaspora Dialogues is a is a program under Priority African Network that actually emerged from many of the conversations that Gerald was talking about that sort of came out organically as we were trying to explore ways to bridge these differences. What it is, is it's, it's a space, it's a curated space that's intentionally carved out to have conversations about race and identity between Black migrants and African Americans. We knew that there were differences um, and recognize that these differences need not mean divisions or um, should not be seen necessarily in singular negative narrative. Um, so by bringing folks together to, to talk about their identities, you know, where people come from, how they identify, how they experience their lives as Black people in the United States, this space, this African diaspora dialogues was absolutely critical to helping us understand how, um, how diverse these experiences are and that for some, and in fact, for a good number of Black migrants who come to the United States very much rooted in their identity as Nigerian or Ethiopian or anything but 
black slash African-American, the transition is not immediate, that there has to be a process through which people embrace their racial identity, but their primary identity tends to be, you know, a country that's, that's, um, um, another country, you know, outside the United States. So for African-Americans to see this, that the primary identity is not racial, was seen very much as a negation of their racial identity. And those created differences. And that bridging we were talking about was making that dialogue space available to talk about how someone claiming their identity as Nigerian, as their primary identity and not necessarily racial, is not a negation of their race. It's not a negation of or a betrayal of the African-American history or, or, or uh, contribution, that it's it's a very different way of understanding identity. And that, that it, it was a process. It was not, we recognized from, from, from the first um, uh, time that we started doing this, that it would need to be a process of dialogues rather than a singular space or event where where people could have a one-off conversation. Part of the goal of these African diaspora dialogues is to begin to shape a new Pan-African identity across the different experiences and nationalities. Uh, and, And so the dialogues were a way for people to find commonality. And oftentimes those dialogues turned into therapy sessions because people were recounting their experiences with each other. Uh, African-Americans experienced feeling rejected by African immigrants, for example, or African immigrants feeling rejected by African-Americans and some of the tensions. But also what came out was was some of the positive experiences uh, that we've had with each other. And so uh, it became a session where it was... uh, we, 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 we created a, a space where people felt free to express themselves. And so uh, what we saw was some healing going on, some really active listening to each other. And oftentimes people would end up in tears recounting their experiences, both tears of pain, but also tears of joy in, in entering a space where they felt like they were being seen and heard. And so uh, in that way, we were able to bring people together. And then uh, our, our ultimate goal was to channel people into political action around racial justice and immigrant rights. One of the spaces where we did um, some of this work was um, uh, called the Black Immigration Network. It was a space um, and a network that was actually that emerged um, during Gerald's tenure at Baji, the Black Lines for just immigration. These were uh, sort of like conferences. These were annual gatherings that were primarily of uh, 100% of Black people, but of immigrant and um, native-born um, Blacks. And we knew that in in crafting a common political agenda, in looking at immigration or any other threats to Black communities. We needed to have um, sort of to clear the air, so to speak, uh, to make sure that these differences don't emerge on in other workshops, um, say, about police brutality or whatever different workshops. Were. So we would start with the black with, with the African diaspora dialogues at the very beginning of these sessions. 
to confront and address that there are differences because I think that was the strength is initially in, a, in saying, yes, there are differences. Let's talk about these differences. What do they mean to you personally? What do they mean to you for your community? Um, tell us the stories, the anecdotes. And that was an incredible release for people to, to be able to share some of their experiences, some of which were really difficult. But by putting it out there, um, and clearing the air, we were then able to go into these respective workshops and talk about the work that needed to be done to advance our common agenda. Um, and we recognized this from the very beginning that you cannot come into a space with assumptions of unity, of racial unity, when there are differences that exist that do not get addressed from the very beginning. That is a really cool way to start the work, to acknowledge where everyone is starting from and, and building that bridge before you get down to work. How do you get people to be interested in coming to the room? We've conducted these uh, Af African diaspora dialogues in a number of settings. We've done it with the uh, Black Student Union at UC Berkeley. We've done it with a faith group in, in Southern California. Uh, we've done it, as Nunu said, within the Black Immigration Network, which is a group that was dedicated to immigrant rights and racial justice. Uh, we've done it uh, at the uh, Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco through an open invitation. Uh, so it's been a whole range of uh, groups uh, in different settings uh, in what we find is that it's applicable uh, to a whole lot of different settings. It's, you know, we, we look at the demographic change across the nation. Uh, we know that the, the numbers of the population size of black immigrants is growing. Um, probably one of the highest and fastest growing is that of uh, African migrants, but not only. According to one of the studies, I think it was done by Baji in 2018, um, the assessment is that 20% of who's considered African-American community now are Black migrants. So when you have a situation where one in five people who are considered African-American are actually Black migrants, meaning they have very different experiences and understanding of their identity, of their, their place in the United States, of the, the struggles that they need to be a part of. There needs to be strategies to bridge these, these connections. It cannot just be assumed that if you're Black, you, it's in your DNA to understand that you know, um, white, the rise of white supremacy um, is going to be a threat to you and your community, and you need to, to join the struggle. There are communities that live and work in clusters of their primary identities, um, and many of them are groups that we work with with Priority Africa Network, um, Nigerian communities, Ethiopian, Eritrean communities that live and work and worship um, in, in clusters of their ethnic identities, their primary identities. So you cannot have a, a sort of an outreach process where you convene, quote unquote, black communities and assuming everyone is included because the there are communities that are excluded, if not by design, then by default, because you're not looking at ways to outreach to communities that you assume are included 
because they're black, but they're actually not coming to the spaces where the struggle that includes them and impacts them, um, they need to be part of, but they, they're not they're not getting the messages. So that's part of the reason when Gerald talks about ways of inclusion, of of uh, making sure that the we have we we forge a common agenda, um, knowing who the people are, where they worship, where they socialize, and how to craft the message in ways that make sense to them. I'm also curious. I understand that the work that uh, Baji has also done has included bridging Latino immigrants with African Americans. Why is this work important and connected to the broader mission? Because I think that from the very beginning of Baji, what we understood was that the struggle for immigrant rights, the broad immigrant rights, uh, is intimately connected with the struggle against racial justice that has been on the African-American agenda since we were put in chains and, and brought to the United States. And that the immigrant rights movement and struggle is just another front in that struggle against white supremacy. And that if we wanted to address our struggle, African-Americans wanted to be a, uh, to be victorious in our struggle against white supremacy, we had to join with folks who had the same struggle. And so part of that is how do we connect with the immigrant rights movement and how do we create opportunities for dialogue across those different communities so that we can see, find our common stories and common humanity. And so uh, that's what we set out to do uh, with the African communities and with Latinx communities in particular. Those are the two communities that we focused on. Uh, and the Latinx immigrant community being the largest group of immigrants, uh, Spanish-speaking immigrants being the largest, with Mexicans being the largest within that, uh, we began to do some bridging work with those communities. Uh, so we felt that that was critically important because there were, again, tensions across our communities with African-Americans feeling in many cases, that Latinx people were taking our jobs, uh, that, that anti-Black racism was impeding relationships. Uh, and on the Latinx side, uh, falling into a, a, a negative narrative about African-Americans viewing us as uh, oftentimes not all uh, Latinx immigrants, but a, a narrative that was pretty dominant that was that African-Americans are lazy, they're criminals. Uh, and so trying to address those negative uh, dynamics and stereotypes on both sides and really looking at how we can create some space for people to come together and experience each other and understand each other and have empathy for each other and to, uh, and to understand what our similar experiences with economic domination and racism uh, has brought us to this point. You remember, Gerald, I can't remember when it was, but one of the outcomes of these conversations about racism, not, we were constructing it primarily as African-American Latinx relations 
but one of the outcomes was listening to our Latinx, um, you know, allies telling us about the colorism that exists within, you know, the, the Latinx community, how the colonial framework had, you know, these hierarchies mm-hmm. of almost total negation of the presence of blacks, black Mexicans or, you know, Venezuelans and Honduras and Panama. You know, it's almost as if they do not exist. And yeah. this was this is one of the outcomes of the conversation that was so profoundly moving is that people are coming with pre, you know, with concepts of race long before they even come to the United States of, of that construction uh, is influencing their their notions of who African-Americans are. And these these are you know much needed conversations that needed to be done then, but need also to be to continue to be had now. That this is not something that is solely of U.S. making, but that it's a global phenomena from colonialism that that has existed that continues to influence our understandings of, of race and identity. Can you tell me of a bridging story that you're proud of? In two thousand and nine, I was invited to uh, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, by a group called Ironbound Community Corporation. They had been in the community for dozens of years doing economic development, and they had just started a community organizing project, organizing around environmental justice. And they were bringing together new immigrants, Latinx immigrants from Mexico and Central America with African-Americans living in the projects. Now, Ironbound community is a historic African-American community in Newark. And Latinx immigrants were coming in. And so African-Americans were feeling like they were taking over their geographic space, uh, that they they had no connection to them whatsoever and were very suspicious of them. And so Ironbound Community Corporation asked me to come in and help them figure out how to bridge those different communities. So what we did was we, I organized with them a Black History Month event, uh, and they organized 25 African-Americans who lived in the projects to come to this event. So we showed a, a 30-minute film on the African-American migration from Mississippi to Chicago during World War I. Uh, so that kind of set the stage for, you know, the experience of, Jim Crow segregation and and racist violence in the South, and then what uh, African American migrants found when they got to Chicago. You know the the, uh, the blatant discrimination and racism in the housing and and job market and uh, and and so that's what the the film depicted. Then I shared my family's migrate migration experience from New Orleans to. Los Angeles during World War II with the same themes in mind about what they faced in New Orleans and what they faced when they got to L.A. Then I asked people in uh, the audience, again, African-Americans from the projects, to talk about their family's migration history. Uh, It became uh, a cathartic session because oftentimes we as African-Americans kind of leave that history of the South behind us. We don't talk about it uh, because it's a, some of it is so painful. 
Uh, and then, so it became cathartic. It became people just really pouring out their hearts out about what their family, what they experienced. And, and if they weren't direct uh, migrants, what their families experienced. And so uh, then we talked about race, immigration, uh, and globalization and how racism and economic globalization has impacted all our communities and forced uh, migration and drew the parallels between the African-American migration and immigration. And it was like light bulbs went off in the room. Uh, people were coming up to me afterwards, thanking me profusely. And then what the organizers reported to me afterwards were those same African-Americans who would, who would complain about how long the meetings take in their environmental justice program because they had to do uh, uh, translation for Latinx folks. They were now champions for, we need to have good uh, translation so we can understand what folks are saying. Uh, and then on the Latinx side, they did some workshops on the history of the African-American community in, in uh, Newark. So now African-Americans began showing up to demonstrations against the building of a new de immigrant detention center in Essex County. Uh, and so just understanding that history and connecting the migration stories really brought uh, uh, these groups together in a way that just uh, saying that we're all impacted by environmental injustice and we need to come together, uh, there's a, a deeper bond uh, that was able to be formed. And so that is really uh, the essence of bridging, is how do you create a shared humanity, a shared story, and a shared future? And uh, I can tell you that I have been transformed by this work personally, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of deep empathy and a deep sense of, of uh, you know, blurring the lines between our communities uh, and really feeling uh, a part of a larger identity uh, and uh, really uh, beginning to... Uh, understand the experience of immigrants and in uh, taking and, and always looking at how I can understand even better and listening, deep, deep listening is really a critical skill in terms of bridging. How do you know when your bridging work is done? Well, we'll know when our bridging work is done, when there's social and economic justice for all of us, where there is a true sense of belonging in this country, where people have agency, uh, uh, and, and uh, everyone has what they need to thrive. And so this bridging work uh, is ongoing. It's never done. It's never done. Uh, we have so much work to do in relationship to, to just what Nunu was talking about in terms of creating this new Pan-African identity. That work is ongoing. Bridging across differences with Latinx and Asian and Native communities. Uh, all of this work has to be done on an ongoing basis, and it's, uh, I don't see an end to it. You know, back in 2006, at the formation of Baji, 
within a, a year or two, we had seen such enormous change with the communities we were dri- directly working with, uh, with the African-American community, with the African communities, um, in terms of how the, 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 the change of attitude, you know, the, the mm-hmm. sense of people feeling and connecting. And we were so hopeful um, that, hey, 10 years from now, you know, we will have had enormous, impactful, measurable changes. And then 2016 happened. <laughs> with an overt, you know, white supremacist um, language at the very top. And, and you recognize that you cannot be complacent about these things, mm-hmm. that the, you know, the enormity of the work is, as Gerald says, it it's not going to be done, but that we need to be a lot more vigilant in making sure that the the work continues to happen at every level, you know, at the grassroots community level, uh, in the churches and the community centers, but also at institutional level um, and, and also at policy level. So, um, yeah, it's never done, but I think um, we, we definitely need to enhance it in ways that reach more people and make it a little bit more impactful. You both have done incredible bridging work across the country through dialogues. For listeners who may be interested in implementing this framework, can you outline how someone can replicate this work? So, uh, you know, some of the work that I'm doing at the Othering and Belonging Institute is around uh, bridging and belonging. And so we have uh, curriculum designed around uh, these notions of bridging and belonging and can support groups in understanding the concepts. Uh, We are in the process of developing case studies that includes the Baji case study uh, so that people understand a different Context: How how people across the country are are doing bridging work, and so they can contact us at the Othering and Belonging Institute. Uh, uh, we also Nunu and I are still also doing African diaspora dialogues, and so uh, in we uh, Nunu has developed some some uh, uh, pointers on how to uh, facilitate the dialogues. Yeah, so thanks to COVID, we've had to be um, a little bit more event, uh, innovative to to see how this would work on Zoom, um, because typically the way the dialogues happen are in the ways that we've done the work always in the past. You convene the community. We have um, well-crafted processes. Uh, with facilitators that have done this, primarily Gerald and I, but also our colleagues um, uh, within um, Othering and Belonging and and, um, Baji and Pan that have done this, um, to convene people. You know, you sit in a particular way, in a circle, a half circle, make eye contact, body language. So, we, you know, we very carefully crafted this for in-person convenings and knew how to measure the temperature, you know, as things get heated and when to spark a conversation that gets everybody included and all that. But we've had to move into um, online uh, spaces and and that hasn't been easy, but we've crafted a process to see how that works. And um, we're enormously grateful for the resources uh, at Othering and Belonging because a lot of the the techniques and the lessons from other communities on how to bridge these 
you know, the tools and the process that have been enormously helpful. Um, so we we now um, conduct them um, online, um, but there's also a process of making sure that people know what to expect when they come in, how to prepare ahead of time, how to continue the conversations offline, um, you know, confidentiality, making sure that what people share, um, sometimes very intensely personal, traumatic experiences remain Mm -hmm. in confidence. You know, these are all kind of very carefully um, we approach them with care because it it's really is about bringing people together and and making sure that they feel comfortable. Um, and what what we were what Gerald was saying earlier about listening. I mean that's one of the the key points. Is a lot of times when you bring people together, they've got a they've got this anecdote that they want to share. They've got the story. They've got this idea that so they they're not listening with their full presence. Mm. They're there to tell you and not to listen to you. And we make sure that there is really good, intentional, respectful listening. So without listening to one another, it's not a dialogue, it's a monologue. And you never achieve anything with monologues. So uh, we continue them. But hopefully after the pandemic, we can go back to um, to the way we were doing things because it's, there's nothing as in-person conversations, even though we have the template and people can do their own conversations in their respective spaces, whether it's university or work uh, spaces and, and all that. Um, and we're happy to share this. It's almost as an open sharing platform as long as people acknowledge where the work is and 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 that they're using it in, in ways that are respectful um, of the work and the history that has gone into it. Yeah, I really resonate with all the work that you're doing. And um, I'm an immigrant myself from Mexico. I came to the United States when I was five. And as you're talking and sharing your stories, I'm thinking about instances when I was in high school of moments where I think bridging could have been helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And realizing that the immigrants like myself who came here at a young age who spoke English were very different than Latino immigrants who came when they were in high school, middle school age, and were still learning how to speak English. And there was definitely a disconnect in the way that we talked about Latinos in my school was very disconnected. As a high school student who may be experiencing this, what would what what are things that I could have done to start the dialogues as you have been describing? Well, I think probably one way is to begin a dialogue, a one-on-one dialogue with uh, people in your class Mm -hmm. uh, to really uh, try to formulate how to address uh, whatever the breaking narratives are in in the school or in the space that you're in and, and slowly build a group that has some understanding of the issue and uh, wants to do something about it. Uh, that's really the start is being an organizer mm-hmm. uh, and really trying to dissect the issue and the problem before you try to uh, address it. Uh, so that's what I would say. I think uh, we've got some tremendous organizing in our high schools uh, across the country. And uh, I think that uh, if we can bring these kinds of uh, bridging dialogues at all levels of our educational system and in our communities, 
I, I think we could go a long way in terms of uh, addressing some of the false narratives and some of the uh, some of the tensions that uh, that are in our communities. Yeah, Thank high school so is, a, is an interesting age because you, um, looking at some of the middle and high schoolers that that are in our community um, of um, Nigerian or Eritrean or Ethiopian parentage, they're, they're at that age where they're sort of coming to recognize and own fully their blackness, but they're also living in communities where they're grounded in their culture. Uh, families are insisting, you know, no, you're not black. You are, you know, Nigerian or Yoruba, Hausa, Eritrean and, and, and all that. So they're just at that sort of um, age where where they need to understand their own identity and and be comfortable with the fact that they could be both and not mm-hmm. feel conflicted. But how they're perceived, particularly, I think the the kids, the students with uh, from Nigeria or Ethiopia with funny names, you know, the, the kids can be really harsh in terms of um, making fun of their names or that they don't fit. Um, so it's a really uh, funny age where, you know, you're not comfortable with your body and your your social networking, but you're also looking for acceptance. So a lot of times I think um, uh, conflicts happen because the, of what you're saying, that, that you're looking to identify and to feel comfortable in a space and you're not feeling accepted and you don't feel like you belong and, and you're being pushed to the periphery. So work with with students is i agree really really critical it needs to be done and handled with care awesome you've uh, both mentioned different groups who've used this framework um advocacy students etc um who do you think would benefit from uh implementing a bridging framework in their work well, I think you can benefit from bridging in any setting, in a work setting, in a school setting, in advocacy group setting, any kind of nonprofit setting. Uh, I, I think it, it has widespread application. Our, our goal has been to use it uh, building the social movements, and it's been uh, extremely useful in that. But I think it can be used uh, in any type of setting. Uh, but uh, some of the issues that come up in different settings is perhaps power differentials. So, uh, you know, so in, the, in a work setting, you know, one of the power differentials that, that perhaps impede people from, from really opening up and becoming very frank in, in relationship to the, uh, the issues that they face that are barriers to bridging, you know, mm-hmm. so... In our dialogues, we really talk about the barriers to bridging uh, and some of the negative experiences people have had with each other. And that could be hard in, in, a, in a situation where there's power differentials, uh, where someone that is, a, uh, for example, uh, in a work situation where uh, you're, you know, your supervisor or, or your boss is part of that dialogue. It's hard to be pretty frank uh, oftentimes. So so I think, but I think uh, having said that though, I think bridging dialogues and bridging techniques 
can be useful in any setting. There are demographic changes that are happening across the nation. There are more Black people that are now in the United States that have come since the 1970s than have come since the transatlantic slave trade. So there is presence, large populations that do not trace their ancestry necessarily to the transatlantic slave trade, nor have lived through generationally with Jim Crow. Uh, but everyone is being impacted by racism. That's just that's just the nature of the profound reality of being black in in America. So when we look at bridging and um, influencers uh, positions of influence and change, we look at African American institutions, you know, national nationally. There has to be recognition that the term African-American is not necessarily inclusive of all Black communities, primarily Black migrants who don't see that term inclusive of them. So it's not an exclusion by design, but it is sort of a, a term where people feel they don't, they're not included. So when there is um, an outreach on COVID, or as Gerald was giving the example earlier about uh, voting, and, and you're targeting Black communities, how do you know the Black communities, the Black migrant communities are being reached? Who are they? Where are they? How do we have an intentional outreach and bridge building so they feel included? So it's not just changing the, the term African-American to Black, you know, communities. It's more than that. It's it's about intentional bridge building, relationship building, where these differences are acknowledged, but they need not be differences of division that they, you know, if you are uh, doing outreach uh, for Black voters in Georgia and you know there's a large um, Haitian community, there's a large Nigerian community, you you don't use the same tools of outreach that you do for African-American communities. So it's it's about changes that need to happen um, in, in outreach and design by large African-American communities that are well-resourced to, to reach the majority of Black folk, but are not reaching Black migrants. And that needs to be recognized. That needs to be addressed as, as, a, as a gap. Um, and and the, you know, what does the bridge, bridge building look like needs to be a conversation that, that is had um, at, at the larger level. Thank you so much. We're close to um, it being time to end the conversation. And so I wanted to end with the question is of what is the future that you envision for this work? Well, I think uh, we want to spread the gospel of bridging. <laughs> so, so, you know, I get calls all the time. I got a call the other day, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, from a group in Nebraska who uh, were trying to bridge African-American and black immigrant communities. They were calling me in my capacity as the Other and Belonging Institute and wanted to know more about this bridging framework. Uh, and so I was able, because of my experiences with Baji and Priority African Network, was able to have a discussion with them about our, our African diaspora dialogues. And so uh, 
really just supporting groups on the ground that are trying to do this bridging work. And increasingly, folks, because our communities are becoming so diverse, they're having to address the tensions across communities or the lack of connection, if not tension, across our communities as they try to do their work to, to, uh, to impact uh, social uh, and policy. And so, uh, and so I think that uh, the future really is for us to continue to support groups across the country uh, and, uh, and also to, uh, to bring our experiences to bear and to give them the, the benefit of our knowledge and experience. Yeah, the, the hope that I have for this is that we would not only continue to work on it, but that we need to continue to work in collaboration with organizations that say, share the, the vision. There are three targets. One is the African communities, and there are numerous communities across the country that convene and work directly with communities. So that conversation needs to happen at that level. It needs to happen uh, with African-Americans, as I was saying, not just communities, but institutions. And then the third arm of that are philanthropic entities. You know, this work is deserving of to be an institution by itself. Uh, we have incubated it um, for the love of the work and, and the passion that we've had, you know, for for a long, long time. But I think it needs to grow and it, it has enormous potential realizing the diversity that is happening within the black community because it's it's not homogeneous. The black community is incredibly diverse, has always been diverse in terms of class and, and, and other factors. But it's now diverse because people from many, many different countries are coming in. Um, and and recognizing and and being recognized and captured on the census as black, but not necessarily identifying as such. And need, they need to be embraced into sort of the the family, and that has to be an intentional uh, strategy. It's not going to be di- by default. So I have enormous hope of where it's going. Um, but we're we Gerald and I are committed to this work, um, and we'll continue to do it without a doubt. That was Gerald Lenoir and Nunu Kadane. Thank you for your time. And to our listeners, check out our other podcasts where we explore other cases and discuss belonging and bridging in more detail. For more resources and curriculums, please go to belonging.berkeley.edu slash B4B. That is slash letter B, number four, letter B. Until next time.